technology is just an enabler. Good technology must be transparent. You actually should be invisible. So if the technology is so invisible and makes your life better, then that's a good usage of technology. Hello, you're listening to Digital Surfing. I am Darren Smith, and we have a special guest today, George Yayura. He is the Chief Marketing Officer at Planet Smart City, and boy, did we have fun in our chat. You're going to hear all about telecommunications, Skype, music, and the music industry, as well as the payments industry, and then moving on to development and, and, and what the future of the world might look like. Really, really enjoyed this discussion. Let's go and meet George. Thank you for joining us today, George. It's uh, awesome to have you on Digital Surfing. Thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to be, uh, to be with you, Darren, today. When I look at your background, you have done a huge amount of travel. Are you going crazy being stuck in one place for this amount of time? I have to say it's been quite difficult and then I have to relearn how to travel. I'm, I'm between of want to be traveling all the time, and, but also the hassle of traveling now is getting a bit more complicated. But you're right, I've been traveling pretty much all my life, got a foot pretty much in, in all continents except Australia. Why has there been so much travel? Has it all been work-related? My mom used to say that I was traveling before actually being born. It's national background. I've got four passports, so speak five languages from being a kid. And I'm not a spy. I'm not a spy. So I say that because when people see, you know, four passports, lots of different languages, like, oh, what's going on? I've always found having those experiences, specifically uh, abroad, uh, make you richer. Every single time, I know it sounds mm-hmm. like it's sort of like an obvious thing, but you uh, gain a little bit of, of yourself and you, you leave a bit of, your, of yourself every time you travel. So I find that fascinating. So you might not be a spy, but you could be an international man of mystery. Well, yeah, but I'm too old for that now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting what you say about travel and giving you insight into the world, because one of the questions that I always have in an interview when I'm interviewing a marketer is, where have you been? Because I feel like it's so difficult to be a marketer if you haven't experienced people in different cultures. 100%. I mean, I'm a big believer of behavioral marketing. I love to understand people's behaviors. I think it's just beyond culture. It's understanding what is the common denominator across all cultures, but also what they make them take or trigger. Where are the specific touch points? And you hear it from the words I'm using is I'm a marketing guy. It's really important because this is how you build really good value propositions. This is how you understand also the context. You understand what it, what is the value you're providing to your customers, whether they're B2B or B2C. I think this is really important. And if you don't have a different perspective and you only have your perspective, then uh, yeah, I think you're missing uh, that element that makes uh, a good product or a good service. And you've also got a music label. Yes, that's just a hobby. I've tried. So I'm a frustrated musician. I don't play any, any instrument. But I've got a good ear. I had a few things in music. I, I went to Japan and I lived there for close to five years and decided to do it just as a hobby to launch two, uh, two record labels. Um, mm-hmm. One for French pop, which was very popular by then, which was really a lot of fun. I'm still around music, but I never really fully invested into uh, to the music industry. So jazzy hip hop. Do your kids realize that they've got a cool dad? I have to say I've got cool kids. <laughs> <laughs> so my daughter, eight years old, she loves music. She's got the year as well and she's better at playing instrument than i am so she plays piano and she wants to learn the violin which is great and she's quite cool i mean this morning to give you an idea she woke up she listened to the b-52s at the push mode and then after 
to that Fleetwood Mac. So not too bad. And then yesterday she was talking to me about the Beastie Boys. Wow, that is really cool. Yeah, Beastie Boys. She's on the eight. Quite eclectic, as you can see. And my little one, uh, three, every time she hears music, she wants to uh, she wants to dance. So I've got really cool kids. I'm really happy with that. Yeah, I'm jealous. My daughter's also eight, but she's more like the Taylor Swift, definitely not Beastie Boys style. <laughs> yeah, well, I have to curate the Beastie Boys, the one that I can, uh, you know. But yeah, it's fun to have uh, girls like that, uh, specifically for a guy like me who loves music. Yeah, yeah. So is this how you met Peter Gabriel through your connection with music? Yeah, this is a funny story, actually. I met Peter Gabriel twice. The first time I was a, I was a student in San Francisco, and I was a bartender at nighttime. And uh, he, he just came to the hotel uh, bar and, and asked for an old-fashioned or something like that. And I mean, you recognize him right away. And he was with Alan Parker. That was interesting. I didn't get to, to talk too much with him. But then after that, I met him very briefly when he had a company called OD2, which was a company basically trying to do digital music and download and managing the rights, but basically really from a music perspective, so protecting the rights of artists and so on. And we worked together to do the first platform for music downloads. And it was done with the ISPH to work for a free serve slash want to do that. But that was a long time ago. <laughs> it was not a serious success, unfortunately. <laughs> Why was it not a success? Is it because of Napster and those type of free downloads were so prevalent yeah. then? Or what led to it not being well yeah. received? I think it was uh, a variety of things. The first one, let's be honest, we were still in dial-up. So that's the first if you're dial-up and you're still, for people remember what dial-up was, is you have to go and boot your, root, your router and then hear this crazy noise. You get online and every single time you're downloading something, you say, oh my, my God, how much is going to cost me? So dial-up plus the cost of the, the song that the economics were not adding up. The second one, yes, you're right. I mean, the piracy back then was just, everything was on fire. There's so many platforms out there. And there was a lot of long competition there. But actually, this is what we were trying to combat in a way. We were trying to demonstrate that you can do that in a different way and still respect the artist's rights and, and copyrights and then having everybody have a fair share. I think the last bit is probably the maturity of the market digress much into the music side. But it's only 15% of people really want to buy music. The rest will listen to music but literally buy music. It's not something that for everybody. Yeah, it was just timing was not 100% right. But it was a great experience. Uh, we got to do that. And look where we are now. Spotify, jukebox model, membership led. I think the timing was just not right. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I've had so many ventures myself where if only the timing was right, the Facebooks and the HubSpots and Spotify's and everything, it's amazing. As much as you can have a great idea, there's some things that just are out of your control. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, frustrating because when you think about it, you're like, wow, I had a great proposition, but a big piece of the proposition is obviously you need to have the customers and then the overall environment to enable that. If you don't have that, it's hard to do it. If you look at Apple Pay, it's a completely different type of example, Apple Pay or Android. They had to wait really for the market to get super mature, to have everybody using contactless and all of that. And then once it was ready, you just have to add on the wallet. And that's it. From the day one, the boom, you have everything that you can scale. I think sometimes a bit of patience, but it's also having a very, very clear understanding of your ecosystem, what is missing and how you scale that. So sticking on kind of your creative ventures, you also created a game. What was that all about? The game, it was through friends. I, I didn't create the game myself. I was close to them and I was trying to help them. It was a massively multiplayer online game. And the same thing, massively multiplayer online game that you think about World of Warcraft. Uh, you, there's so many games now 
that are fully online. I would say actually the majority now. But dial up. <laughs> again, again ahead, of, ahead of the curve. And these guys were extremely successful. I was on the publisher side, but these guys were super successful. They were ranking up a, a lot of accounts, a lot of people using it. And it was a fantastic game. I mean, imagine you just create a whole galaxy and you could colonize any planet. And then you could do any, you know, anything you want, create your own ships and so on. So it was fantastic, but it was free. Uh, and then we were trying to monetize that. Uh, these guys were trying to fully monetize that with what today is a pretty big industry is all these digital assets that, or digital, yeah, my digital sword or, or my new cape or whatever. But just too early, way too early. Now uh, it's, it's a given you have a, an online game. It's usually free. And everything is done through the monetization of these uh, small assets. So another lesson learned. This frustration with dial-up, is that what led you to go and work at an ISP? Uh, yeah, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was very fortunate. I think three pivots in my career. The first one is that these three pivots were very formative. The first one was with a telecom operator. It was France Telecom, which they started a, a small entity called France Telecom Multimedia. Um, and then we were just about 50 people, I think. We just, the start was about 50. We, pretty much none of them came from telecom. We were not engineers. So we're, we were not looking at telecom as a pipe or as a technical environment. Our task was what kind of multimedia, you know, it sounds a very old word now, uh, content we would, we would create and what would be the platform, what would be the distribution model, what would be the business model out of that. And we really started from the ground up looking at different types of, of content, media, and, and then we borrowed a lot of business models from the broadcasting industry, from the publishing industry, from pay-as-you-go type of telecom and after a while, where we, we looked at it, I, I did well, now let's do a portal. So I always had really at the, at the start of what would be called the portal side of an ISP. And we developed that in, in just about three to four years. We had a really strong backing back then. But the company grew from 50 to, uh, to hundreds. And the whole group, you know, after five, close to six years, we were 6,000 to give you an idea. And we, we went IPO. So I started, you know, trying a few things. And ended up with in a marketing role overseeing uh, all the portals for what I do. And here in the UK, including FreeServe. It, it was great. It was great. The other things that is peripheral to that is, is looking how, you know, the advertising world would, or model would, would adapt to an, an online world. It, it, it was fascinating to be there because the advertising world, people don't recall, but it was very human-led. So we had teams of people sending ads, like you were sending an ad on the yellow pages. They were selling the ads on the portal and gradually realized that uh, the model was going into keywords. We used to call them AdWords. It was part of that transition into the human-led, tech-led. And I saw the, the power of technology there because you're, you're looking at very early stages of machine learning, very early stage of of bidding, and then you're looking at different types of keywords. And basically, with volume and scale, all of this was creating, generating more wealth. So we, we pivoted to that model. And this is what today is that is the main model with PPC, with Google, and, and so on. I hear you using words like pivot, and we got to try new things. I feel I don't hear that as much anymore. I, I was also early stage ISP creating content. That's my background too. We were like you trying things and so on. Do you think that, you know, companies have become less experimental and, and shying away from this type of just testing? I think it's a, it's a fantastic question. I think the difference is you and I were probably looking at how we build the foundation 
of a business. And today the foundation exists. So it's a much lower entry barrier in terms of technology because it's there, not just from a cost perspective, but also from a availability perspective and how you, you can combine your, your technology to create a tech stack. We were at very early days. We were trying to define what would be the right technology. But I think we, you and I probably started, okay, what is the right type of product or service we want to deliver and how we enable that? It's kind of missing today is a bit of the trial and error, but maybe it's due because today we're looking at more targeted or more laser-focused type of propositions. Uh, that, that could be the case. But I think what you do see today is very contrasted world you have. Early startups are looking to scale and how fast can they scale and what is the right model to scale. And you have companies that are going through their digitization or digital transformation. And then they are they have to fully transform and pivot to deliver a, a different type of business and business model. So you have these two elements that are happening and it's it's happening in pretty much all industries. I lived that in financial services and telecom. And come back to the word pivot, for me, there's a pivot in terms of how you scale and there's a pivot of how you transform. That's really interesting. Let's keep on the topic of today. You're at Plan Smart City. What is that all about? So I plan a smart city. I'm, uh, I'm the chief marketing officer for, for Plan Smart City. We have a very innovative business model. We're designed, we build smart cities, in, integrating IoT and digital services into the proposition. And we do that for affordable housing. Um, so for people, consumers or customers out there that are looking for affordable housing. We also provide services on the B side. But the idea is to provide access to to better infrastructure, better proposition that is fully integrated with the digital world. And then we do that mostly in emerging markets. We do that in Brazil, in India. We have some business in the US and and in Europe. So that's a real different take on the traditional industry of property development, right? And adding in that digital spin onto that. Yeah, you're right. 100%. It is different because we have a human-centric approach. So we think about what is the end product that we want to provide or end proposition to our customers, and we work backwards to make it happen. Uh, A developer would go sequentially the opposite way. They would buy the land and try to maximize everything and basically sell you the house. When you buy a house from Planet Smart City, this is where the relationship starts. This is where you can discover all the services, all the social innovation that we integrate within the smart cities. And we do that through the Planet App. So Planet App can reserve your, your, your the tennis court or specific lesson, or you could use it as a marketplace to exchange services and or to control simply your connected appliances within the houses. So it, it acts as a catalyst of all usage. And, and let's remember, we're providing this infrastructure to people who have never had access to that. So they don't have access to, to that type of property. Our customers are quite digitally savvy. They're very digitally literate. So they have smartphones, but they don't necessarily have access to the services that are on their smartphones. And we provide that access as well through the Planet app and then through the smart cities that we build. So we go back to what we're talking about with the music downloads and, and multiplayer games. I'm like, these guys don't have dial-up. Had our ideas of downloading music and that type of thing been now in a Planet Smart City environment, we'd be thriving, right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, the vision is uh, is a fantastic vision when you think about it, because you're adding the best of both worlds from a real estate perspective and then providing those houses and the services on top. And then you're giving specifically for this this segment of customers, they don't necessarily have perspective. And I'm using this word carefully, perspective. You know, when 
you're on a modest income, your perspective isn't, doesn't go very far. So here we are, we are providing opportunities to, to have a, a wider perspective and access to more opportunities with, within their reach and within the smart city. So uh, it's a massive plus. Executing this vision is challenging because you need to be looking at multiple aspects of, of how this is delivered, but also making sure the economics work really well for, for yourself and for your stakeholders, your investors, and your customers. So with people that didn't have access to this type of stuff before, is this the whole inclusion element or bringing, uh, how does inclusion play into, into all yeah. of this? So inclusion opportunity, obviously, two big drivers. But let's be clear, we are, we're not a charity, we're not a philanthropy. This is a profit with impact. We're, we're very much into impact investing. But we, we feel like if you are providing better access to, to the right infrastructure, you deliver better outcomes and better communities out there and better customers. And then that circular value comes into play. And for us, this is really key to, to the proposition. So far, we've spoken about digital currency, digital music, and an app for these developments. As a CMO, as a marketer, can you be a CMO without being completely tech savvy? It's an excellent question because I think the role of the CMO is completely uh, is changing or has gradually changed or has always been like this. I mean, depending on what, what optics you're looking at. I think in the old days, before you may have a view of the CMO or that person is very brand-led or is very product-led or is very service-led. That I think you need, as a CMO now, to be multidisciplinary. You need to be able to handle multiple conversations. So a brand conversation, a commercial conversation, a technical conversation, a financial conversation. And if you're not, if you don't have that wide array of, of expertise and be able to do all these conversations, you miss really the trick of delivering these propositions to the right proposition to your customers and being successful. The technology aspect of it is extremely important. Technology is not at the forefront. It's, it's really an, an enabler to what you want to deliver. But you need to have a full view of what in the job, in what is your tech stack? So what is your back office? How do you put that together? It's almost like Legos. Thinking about your front and, and the customer proposition that you want to deliver and that how do you enable that? And I think that's a big challenge. And it's, it's beyond digital marketing. I think it's really... A challenge because you're looking at acquisition, lead management, but after that you're looking into servicing, client servicing, post sales, and, and, and so on. And if you have then a recurrent type of business, then you go into a full lifetime value proposition, which pretty much everyone wants to be because this is where you get most valuation as a company. I love what you said a few minutes ago. You said, you know, it all needs to be about the customer in the end and the strategy what i see at the moment is some of these tech players in the world have such strong sales teams and they're going to marketers and the marketer ends up buying a piece of technology and that technology does not support a strategy it's going to get you to a certain place because just by implementing it you're going to do something but you really need to start with that strategy and then go and find the technology not the other way around yes 100 if you're thinking technology first then that's not going to fly that was the mistake that many of us, when I was in telecom and many of us, we thought that technology was really first, like we thought that B2B came first and then after it went to B2C. And let's be honest, it was kind of like that. The mobile phone started in the B2B world because the, the economics was were much more applicable to that environment. But then it went into the consumer world. But now it's completely the opposite. Things are happening in the consumer world, and then it ripples back into all of the, the rest of the industries and into the business. So if you think about technology first, then you're missing the massive trick about 
okay, how, what is the product service I want to deliver to my customers and what do they really need? I think this is something that also coming back a bit to you at the question earlier. Before we were looking at technology and we're saying, okay, we're building a world company, you know, people play baseball. That doesn't exist anymore. So we, we went from building and it will come. We went to after that, oh, just do it and throw it to the wall and see if it sticks. And if it sticks and then we'll figure out how to scale. I think now it's much more precise in terms of thinking about, okay, what is the, the value proposition? What is the segment? What is the angle I want to take? And what is the experience I want to deliver? And, and, and then how do I create a model that is scalable? So you'll see that you see that in fintech, but a lot fintech started with one of proposition and that was in opposition to the banks but i say they were saying i can do that much better and i'll demonstrate that um, and i will have much more of a customer angle than my competitors and then after that is scaled it may not be as exciting as it was before but i think it's what has been done now is a lot more precise and a lot more customer driven talking about maybe tech technology first you also spent some time at Skype and you mentioned that you were first to market with group video calling. You, before Zoom, before Teams, I, like, I don't hear of people as often having Skype meetings as I do Zoom meetings. What happened? Well, first of all, it was a terrible name. <laughs> <laughs> group video calling. I, I can tell you we debated a lot about this name. I was on the business side of Skype, which was a very embryonic uh, side. Funny enough, now it's quite a big chunk of the business that was acquired later on by Microsoft. My, my type of Skype, probably like in most formative time, after, let's say, one or two orange free serve, you know, all the te- telecom world. Here, it was, it was a, with a challenger, and then we were looking to do something completely different, create Skype for business. We had a massive install base, but we, we were not monetizing it very much. So I was very fortunate to work on the business side and create a set of products in a very short time, when I joined, we had what we used to call the Skype for Business client. So basically, you had the consumer clients, and then we were around half a billion, I think, of users. We reached its 1 billion users just about a few months later. But you had a consumer client, you had the business client, and you had something looking at interactive management portal. And that's about it. So we reshaped everything. We had a Skype manager. You could manage all your Skype accounts. And then we went all the way up in the value chain in actually integrating Skype into the PBX. So I know it sounds a bit technical here, but in layman's terms is integrating Skype into your phone. So you can pick up the phone and, and use Skype. Everybody, everybody calls it now voice over IP. So it's void. So we were, again, very early here, but it was at the right time. It was early, but we were at the right time to test things. Now on group video calling, you're right. We were pretty much the first one. I remember there was WebEx, which was quite corporate and quite expensive, and it was us. And we went for free, and then with a bit of monetization, I guess the level of investment or focus after that, after the acquisition, we made it a bit more complicated. But I know that a lot of elements from Skype being integrated with other assets, you know, Link, and, and today that's what makes Teams. So, yeah. Hmm. My next question, you might not be able to answer factually, but, and it might have been that kind of asked after you left there, but I've had so many requests. We're in the business of CRM and we've had so many requests like our sales reps use Skype. We want to integrate that into our CRM and you can search 
everywhere on the web and there is no Skype API. You cannot get that and just go, oh, I'm going to integrate it into this. I'm going to integrate it to that. And what I'm seeing more and more, the, the businesses that are successful nowadays are businesses that, that are very open, like to connect with, they, they form like these kind of marketplaces and ecosystems. Do you think that's potentially one of the things that Skype hasn't done so well? Yeah, 100%. It was complicated because uh, Skype was not a network. It was a, a peer-to-peer network. So basically, we did not own the network. It was machine-to-machine and all of that. So we were a software company, and it was very important to be seen as a software company. And this is the full positioning that we had. We never were a telecom. We never were, never said we were a, net- a network because obviously, this is a different play. You know, you have to be regulated and you become a telecom. So we were looking at the software side of, of Skype and looking at building services around that. And I think what you've seen is that network became platforms and the platforms became open platforms with APIs and connectors to other services. And you had multi-sided platforms. And this is where the world of SaaS really moved into full maturity. So so Skype was never a platform and never a SaaS platform in, in itself. On the business side, we were closer to that model because we were looking at line rentals. We were looking at integration into the PBX. We're looking at minutes. So we were closer to what could be seen as a network, but again, not 100% into it. So if you look at WhatsApp for Business, for example, it's another one. I mean, it's a great network. It's a great get great reach. And then now salespeople are using WhatsApp for Business for negotiation. We use it, Planet. Our sales teams are actually talking to our customers through WhatsApp for Business because that's the channel they want to use. They don't want to use the phone. They want to use that because you can exchange a lot more information. But the integration with WhatsApp is not for business. It's not also straightforward. You know, there's no real API that connects you there. So I think there are still areas that could be much better, much more integrated. As it is for Skype, the, the business element of Skype was very well integrated within Microsoft. So there's a lot of elements that I do recognize today. The consumer side is another question because... There were multiple elements within the consumer side of Skype. There was the messenger element. Was it competing with WhatsApp? Not so much. Uh, was people were having as many contacts on Skype versus WhatsApp or, or any other type of messenger? Not so much. So there are multiple faceted issues there that, that basically didn't, perhaps didn't help. But looking backwards now, I was there a very short time, a short amount of time, but it was just like a multiply by the seven dog years, you know, real dog years, fun dog years, don't get me wrong. Amazing, fun dogs. Really, uh, I still have a lot of friends, you know, that were in the Skype. And we do have the Skype mafia today, you know. Okay, so Skype was fun. I'm pretty sure Planet Smart City is fun and innovative. But then you were also at Visa. Was that as innovative and fun? Yeah, it was. It was. It was a different challenge, a very different challenge. I, I think it's a, another form of pivot or point in my career. I came to Visa when Visa was a network and was trying to define which element of the network it, it was. I don't want to get too much into the detail, but Visa has a four-party model. Basically, you have the consumer, the merchant, the, the bank, who you have your account with, the issuing bank, and the acquiring bank. But it sees itself very much as a network, making sure the transaction happens. But it was much more than that. So I got to live the transformation of Visa it really from a network to a platform business and full-on platform business with APIs, with connection to lots of different other digital businesses. Funny enough, now they're a network of network. (laughs) And I have to tell you that transformation was very profound, very, very profound. When I joined 
we were part of a e-commerce channel because for Visa was, so if you had caught in a present, you were a remote transaction. So again, a terminology of, of a network. It's it, when you fast forward this, you're looking at moving from a, a pretty basic definition of what a, a remote transaction looks like to now uh, a full-on platform and with ability to connect with multiple providers or, or directly with Amazon, Apple, and so on. And then also to launch to the market, uh, Android Pay, Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, and all, and all of these things. I was there close to a decade, I mean, eight, eight and a half years. You would say, that's a long time. <laughs> but when you have the scale of, of a company like Visa, it takes that time. And to come back to my earlier point, the right timing to find the right level of maturity for the market and the right timing was, was essential for mobile payments. And Apple and, and Google and Samsung were waiting for that right timing. You know, mobile yeah, payments yeah. have been there for a long time, but they were waiting for everything to be right in order to go. Listen to you speak, you, you've got such a diverse background. We just spoke about finance and payments, how people are going to live in the future, entertainment, connectivity, talking to each other. So I'm going to put you on the spot and say, what is the future going to be looking like? All those things are so important to humans and where we're going. What is that future going to look like? I think it's a fascinating uh, moment to, to, to reflect on because we are really at the typical point of going into either providing more value to humans with technology and the connections that we have and make, basically creating a connected world but for the benefits of humans, so technology for good data for good and that into more customer segments. We are proving it at, at, that you can serve normally underserved populations or segments of population that for other type of businesses, we look at them either as, as a risk or we'll ask them to pay a poverty premium because they are looking as a risk. And you can see that actually technology can solve many of these aspects. Sorry to go into a bit more detail, but credit scoring, it's based on really outdated data. If you don't have a home address, the street you live in is not a real street, doesn't have a name or number, then you can, it's really hard to get a bank account. And then how am I supposed to be voting and so on? So you, you think about these are creating so many problems, but these are problems that are multiplied by X amount of thousands or millions of people. So technology can help and provide better, better services. I don't know if you're familiar with what three words uh, the company. It's a fantastic uh, proposition. Basically, they've mapped the whole world in little small uh, squares that people actually to, well, no, they've put names, real words to, to that little square. So Darren, where you live, you could be apple, flour, and rice. And you just give that and then anyone can find you. Okay. So that's the power of technology for good. The flip side to that, you can go very easily into the social engineering and looking at data from just a, just a pure level of taking advantage of data and customer data. There's a lot of customer data out there. And it's very easy to go into that route because you can say, okay, I can monetize with that data. Yes, you can. But what is the value that you're delivering? What is the, the added value you're providing to the customer? So for me, it's really important that we stay clear on providing value for the customer. So what will happen? I think we'll have in the next few years a really good debate between these two worlds. There will be frictions for sure, but it's up to us as customers or as people to really realize, okay, where do I want to put my attention? Where do I want to go? I'm more of an optimist into what's going to happen because in the Western world, we, we have a tendency of just looking at the tip of the iceberg. 
And we just really focus on the tip of the iceberg and say, okay, these changes and all of that. But there's so much that is submerged below the, the tip of the iceberg. And this is where the real growth is. And the surf population is massive. And funny enough, they're not affected by the economic cycles. So they're not house prices go up, go down. No, they're not. They still need a house. See what I mean? Bank accounts, uh, charging, not charging. I still need a bank account <laughs> and so on. A- absolutely fascinating. Yeah, thanks for that. It is about that time where my daughter is going to get home and start playing Katy Perry or something really not that nice for me. So um, let's wrap up before that happens. I want to ask you one last question. When it comes to technology, what is the one thing that people need to remember at all times? Technology is just an enabler. Good technology must be transparent. You actually should be invisible. We used to say uh, at Visa, invisible payment. And I I, I hate to use the the, the example of Uber every single time, because it's been so overused, but it's right. It's invisible payment. So if the technology is so invisible and makes your life better, then that's a good usage of technology. That's brilliant. Well, George, thanks so much for joining me today on Digital Surfing. It's been a really, really fascinating discussion. Really enjoyed it. And I hope to have you back sometime soon. I think there's a whole lot more that we can talk about. For sure. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been great. I really, I really enjoyed the session and I'm looking forward to, to the next time. Take care.